Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us for a very special Halloween edition of Femon Creatives with my writer friend, Dr. Fox Henry Frazier. I, she is a doctor. She doesn't expect people to use it, but if your name is Dr. Fox, <laughs> I feel like that's a real opportunity that, that I wanted to use. Um, Fox is a poet, essayist, and owner of Agape Editions, which is an independent press that that publishes all kinds of incredible work. And when Rhea reached out about doing some kind of Halloween show, I thought of Fox because you do a lot of work in this space where there's spooky things happening or metaphysical things happening. And in fact, you have an imprint with Agape that kind of goes in this direction, correct? Yeah, yes. Um, We just started this year and we've got, let's see... I think by the end of the year, we'll have five titles out. We are, we're a small press, so that's a lot for a new imprint. For that us. sounds like a lot to me. Five. <laughs> that's, that's considerable to vet and release and, you know, publicize and all of that. And what is the name of the imprint in oh, Agape? Yeah, it's um, Haunted Doll House is mm-hmm. the imprint that does, um, we do sort of horror, um, dark sci-fi fantasy um sometimes mystery you know if we get anything that's more of like a mystery that we Mm -hmm. like I think a lot of the time um at least when I started as a poet (laughs) so a couple decades ago um genre writing was sort of not invited to the literary Mm -hmm. party and there's so much really good literary horror out there that I just um you know, once I started reading it, I was like, oh my gosh, like, why haven't I seen more of this? Mm. Uh, so I wanted to create a space where I could, in fact, see more of it. So I agree. I think genre fiction, that was kind of like a dirty word. Like that was something people said um, that dismissively. Yeah, I think even with poetry, I think even in a lot of um, calls for submissions, there would be, mm. no, I would say like, you know, uh, genre work like Mm -hmm. need not apply essentially and for a long time I was like what does genre work mean like I didn't (laughs) I was like every work is in a genre (laughs) that's such a good point and that's that also I think points to how it's used dismissively yeah because it's a like you say everything's in a genre yeah but it's Mm -hmm. like so so lowbrow that it's genre work (laughs) but in fact I mean I think you know, some of my favorite literary fiction could definitely, and I mean contemporary, not even like, mm-hmm. you know, Shirley Jackson's a little bit older, Joyce Carol Oates has been around for a while, but I think even like Tana French or uh, Tana French, yeah. I'm never yeah. sure how to. I'm never sure either, but I know who you're talking about. <laughs> um, yeah, there's this like really fascinating speculative element in almost all of her books, mm-hmm. um, which are like police procedural. Yes, and they do feel like ghost stories a bit. Like yeah. there is there is that presence. I think you always I often feel in those I don't I don't know what that series is called, but I've read them and it feels like something is watching when you're reading them. Like that yeah. there is something spectral happening. It's yeah, I, I agree. And she seems to tie in like a lot of different, you know, either like outright ghost stories or mm-hmm. she'll use sort of like the a doppelganger motif in one of them yes um the, like there are a lot of and she uses irish folklore in another like she has a lot of ways of making things be sort of like uncanny which i think is very mm-hmm. cool very subtle mm-hmm. i think that's why they work and beyond the police like i feel like oftentimes when i'm writing it's something i think about like what's the delivery system for the larger 
<laughs> thing yeah. I want to talk about, you know, like I don't want it to feel too polemic. I want it to be entertaining. And so, yeah. I think, you know, her delivery system is police thriller, but then what is she delivering? You know, these larger stories um, that resonate with us. Uh, yeah. And I think a lot of the time, the sort of spectral element, as you called it, I think it, it gives this sort of sense of like gradual revelation. That's really, mm -hmm. it's very interesting for like a a sort of like a human mystery story, right? Like a detective, (laughs) detectives are sort of like, you know, they make order of the world. They make sense of things. They're sort of like a symbol of law and order in a way. Mm -hmm. And then something spectral that sort of has this slower rhythm of revealing things. I think it's like a, a really interesting tension that she builds with it. I agree. Um, which is in, which is a great sort of segue into just kind of a larger conversation I wanted to have about or or what other what else would you call it mystery like it's interesting what is genre sci-fi fantasy what are we talking about when we say that horror sci-fi fantasy are those the three big three I, I mean, I think so. I think horror, sci-fi, fantasy, and like mm-hmm. maybe mystery are, and I don't even know if mystery is really grouped in with it or not. I'm, <laughs> I'm not it's more commercial. I think because it's more upmarket, right? Mystery. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what, so it's interesting because it is used as, <laughs> so many people love, love genre fiction, and then it is used dismissively. And what, what do you think draws people to these stories? I have my own theories, but what is what do you what do you think is the sort of timeless pull of say horror since it's Halloween? Let's say horror. Um, it's you know it's funny. When I was younger, <laughs> I actually couldn't stand horror as a genre. Yeah. I didn't want to watch horror movies. I didn't want to read horror novels. I was, I always thought like the world is so horrifying on its own. Mm-hmm. Like why do I want to watch like people getting slashed up like that's not fun for me <laughs> like yes when I was pretty I was pretty like indignant about it when I was younger too. I was like I found it like kind of offensive that mm-hmm. people would think I should want that um and I would say a big pivot happened for me when I saw um let the right one in mm-hmm. I think for me a lot of the really a lot of what draws me like I can only speak for myself yeah. of course um <clears throat> But what changed for me when I saw, well, I saw Let the Right One In and then I saw um, You're Next, which mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like, it was the first horror movie I had ever seen. It was, it's like a very like gory, um, kind of like a slasher movie. But the the final girl in that one is someone whose parents, I can't remember exactly, but they were like, I want to say they were like survivalists in like the Australian outback mm-hmm. or like something really extreme like that. So mm-hmm. they taught her how to like do all these crazy like things to like set traps and otherwise defend a, a homestead. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when the serial killer shows up, I mean, it's really like she is the only person who like is able to keep mm-hmm. it together and who has all these ideas of like what they can do. Um, so that basically the killer should be afraid of them, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I had never excuse me I had never really seen a movie where the main female character wasn't afraid and when I say I mean I mean horror Mm -hmm. movies specifically um and so I realized when I saw that and then let the right one in the shift wasn't really uh, anything other than perspective 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and I realized that a lot of what I didn't like about horror movies prior to that was that all of the ones I had seen were, you know, mostly women um, and, you know, sometimes children being like tormented and murdered. <laughs> and yeah. that's, um, <clears throat> but the, I think the shift in perspective happens when somebody who has actually experienced the existence like of living in kind of a marginalized body I guess um when that person is able to kind of get the microphone and and shift the perspective so you still have a lot of the same types of stories being told like I thought a girl walks home alone at night was fucking brilliant sorry I don't know if you're gonna need to no yeah say it all you'd like I wish (laughs) I wish Rhea was on this call because she has probably watched every single one of these movies where I am a person who appreciates and does like some horror but it makes me deeply uncomfortable like so I have to be really choosy about what I watch and um so I I understand why people like it. And I find these conversations so fascinating. But for me, I am still a little bit like you when you were a teenager where I'm like, I just can't let this in. Yeah. No, I mean, certain stories like, I mean, but get out is one of my favorite films. Yes. And that's that's (laughs) partly what I meant about the perspective shift though, is that it's really in many ways, still the same story being told, but the perspective of the person like behind the camera, Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's able to really pivot. And so what you're experiencing isn't this like, you know, the vicarious horror of like, you know, in the exorcist, there's this little girl who's like, yeah, and this priest and this demon are scream- yeah. screaming at each other, basically. Yes. And her body is just like the battleground. I mean, it's kind of like an incidental object. It is horrifying. And it- especially if you know any of the background of what was happening on set. Yeah, it's horrifying, but I I also feel like it's horrifying in a way that sort of like replicates, like, I feel like the movie almost replicates what the the actual narrative is doing, which is that the little girl is an incidental character, Reagan. She's completely incidental. Like, I mean, her name could be anything. She could look like anyone. She's just this little girl who that's her identity. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that, again you know when you when you sort of switch up the perspective a little if the story were told the exact same story if we told it from reagan's perspective to me that is a fascinating story like i mm-hmm. would watch that movie mm-hmm. and i would be horrified on her behalf mm-hmm. um i think the witch is another movie that does that really well the witch is horrifying because all the way through that movie you're like oh my god what are these horrible puritan people gonna do to this little girl like mm-hmm. you're so afraid for her at least i was mm-hmm. that finally at the end when you know goat that's like actually the devil is showing up and having her sign his name or excuse me sign her name in his book I was relieved and I was also like this right here is how you make a you know an evil witch like Mm -hmm. just absolutely terrorized this poor girl who's done nothing wrong and then at the end um I mean, I know you're supposed to be kind of horrified that like her soul is lost to evil and she's become a witch. But I was like, right on. You join that party in the woods. Like, <laughs> go go dance around that fire and <laughs> have a good time. Yeah. <laughs> well, it. how did you feel about the end of Rosemary's Baby? Speaking of the devil. And that's like a classic that I've also seen and studied because she's the mo- devil's mother. Yeah. And she seems yeah. all right with it. Like she's gets to be a mom. I think her greatest fear is that her child's going to be taken from her 
and her child it's okay that the devil's her child yeah and it well and i mean i think i have two answers for that one i have to admit i have not seen that as an adult because it was directed oh, by interesting yes that's um, the good point and, and it's I, worth speaking of horrific yeah i won't uh-huh. I, I watched won't. that in film school before um, yeah. we openly talked about even though everyone knew it wasn't really talked about i think me too really reframed a lot of things that everyone just accepted yeah and i think you know i didn't know until i was an adult like god the way people talked about it they were like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know they were framing it as being mm-hmm. only and exclusively an issue yes. of age which is bad enough but yeah. in Issues actuality yeah and it, but in actuality mm-hmm. it wasn't that is not the only way in which he crossed no. the line in that situation no. it was definitely you know forcible and violent so yes um I think it was definitely framed about the age, so I agree. That's how I always came across the story. The issue was that she was young and that he was reeling from the death of Sharon Tate. Right. And in actuality, it was like, you know, yeah, so much uglier. Yes. Um, I haven't seen it as an adult um, Mm -hmm. for that reason, but I will say from what I remember um, with that last scene where they're essentially sort of like, well, at least be a mother to it. And then she, you know, she starts to sort of like smile and she's getting (laughs) the idea. Yeah. Um, I think for me, like, that sort of captures this really difficult question that I think, I mean, I think people still are struggling with it in many ways today, which is how you find a solution to the fact that people who do unspeakably evil things, um, you know, maybe they're not literally the devil, but I mean, people, human beings Mm -hmm. do unspeakably evil things, but Mm -hmm. they're that doesn't mean that if you love someone and they do something unspeakably evil to you, that doesn't mean that you can just flip a switch and automatically stop loving them. That isn't really how it works most of the time, right? No. Uh, in fact, most of the time it creates a chemical reaction in your brain that leads to a trauma bond, which we now know. <laughs> but um, but I think there's like sort of this, you know, I think we've seen other movies that are kind of dance around similar questions where you know, mm-hmm. somebody's child does something really awful and it's a horrible betrayal or someone's spouse, um, you know, or somebody loves somebody who does something like incredibly evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like a mother's love is such a a universally recognized. And of course, this isn't true for every single person, but I think right. for many people it's true. The love of a mother is such a deep, unconditional, mm-hmm. both spiritual and biological bond with their progeny. Um, it's a kind of love that in some ways for many people is sort of like inalienable I guess I think there's that assumption certainly and especially when the film was made and the book was right you know there's this idea that that mothers will love their children no matter what and I think that is why it's so difficult then to untangle it when that isn't what happens in real life you know because yeah, there is this assumption that oh, mother's love. There's nothing like a mother's love. Well, if your mother doesn't love you, then what? You know, which is a yeah. different conversation. Yeah. But, but I, I think, think it is related to all these conversations, which I love talking about. Like, I think part of the appeal of this genre is that it is one where we are able to ask these big questions. I think it taps into certain anxieties that people have, and mm-hmm. as you yeah. said, you know, well, what if you know that? What if you? excuse me, your mother doesn't love you the way mm-hmm. mothers are quote unquote supposed to. Um, but also, I mean, what about mothers whose children do horrible things? I mean, there's this idea that like, you know, I mean, just for example, I suppose like a serial killer, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're 
excuse me, I'm sure that there are people who still love their children, even if their children have grown up and become serial killers. I mean, I think for some people, they probably just can't help it. Um, yeah. And, and I, I think that sometimes there's a sliver or some sense of responsibility or something that could have been done differently. Because I think especially as a society, we do a lot of laying at the feet of mothers, the challenges of their children. Yes. And so I think what makes that ending so horrifying is the idea that she doesn't care <laughs> that her baby is the mm-hmm. devil. Mm-hmm. He's her baby. And that's more important to her mm-hmm. um, than the fact that he's like the antichrist or the devil. <laughs> I remember truly getting chills at the end when I saw it. It was like, whoa, you know, that's a, um, and I, I mean, I sort of knew how it was going to end, but somehow it was, it was more than that. And I love when that happens with any piece of media where I kind of know where it's headed. And yet when I get there, I feel it's delivering me in a way that I couldn't have anticipated. Like that's a job well done. There's um, this like softening of Mia Farrow's expression at one yeah. point at the end that I remember I, I when you said you got chills, I remember I was like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> like it's it's terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I know that you have you're gonna read us some of your novel in progress. And and part of the reason you chose this to read or why I asked you to read it was because it does address these like larger questions that we're grappling with can you introduce it and and read a bit of it fox for us uh yeah sure so the the novel is called a terrible beauty is born uh it's it's very much in progress um it's actually a line from yates poem Mm. eastern 1916 um and he's talking about the the irish revolution um and he is talking about how through the act of this rebellion that was you know uh, very brutally put down and a lot of the Irish leaders were executed um he's talking about this like sort of bizarre sense of like loyalty or love coming out of that and changing Ireland forever and the way he describes it um is by this refrain a terrible beauty is born mm-hmm. and I <clears throat> I called it that because I was thinking a lot about how when you well, let me backtrack for a second and first explain that the the novel is technically a vampire novel, mm-hmm. but it uses vampirism as an extended metaphor for intimate partner violence. Mm-hmm. And so I, I have done a lot of thinking in the past few years about how when you survive something like that, it changes you. And, you know, it's... Absolutely. It's great to be able to have survived something like that but also you might not always like all of the ways in which it changes you Mm -hmm. um you know (laughs) I think a lot of women really internalize this idea that we're supposed to be loving and kind and that word nice which I really hate because it doesn't even mean anything like you can be (laughs) kind and generous and still have good boundaries and somehow you that's not quote-unquote nice it just it Mm -hmm. drives me nuts um but so I was thinking a lot about that line, a terrible beauty is born. And it's sort of about resilience mm-hmm. um, and a sense of self-love coming from trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think when you realize that you're, when you're in a situation where your life is being threatened and you realize that you're willing to do what you need to do in order to survive, that's not an easy thing necessarily in all situations to realize it's not always an easy conclusion to come to. Um, And so I was thinking about the ways in which 
you know, serious, uh, you know, serious situations like domestic violence, mm-hmm. um, they can sort of create sort of a, almost a, a corollary for that in an individual where mm-hmm. you survive it and there's beauty, there's beauty in being, you know, regaining your power and surviving, but it's also sort of a terrible kind of beauty, not just because you've been through terrible things, but, you know, you might find yourself a little, I don't know, a little more ruthless or a little less forgiving or um, just something that doesn't really fit the mold of traditional femininity, I guess, or, you know, expectations that society has of traditional femininity um, where you're, you know, forgiving and peaceful and, you know, you prioritize forgiveness and love above all things. You might, you might not be that and that's okay. But anyway, so that was kind of the journey that I went on in coming up with the title. I love that. That's beautiful. And so powerful because I think the, I mean, it's not in the title, but survivor is in this conversation. And, you know, there's been more conversations about the word survivor because many people don't survive either because they take their own lives or their lives are taken from them. And um, eventually, Uh, and I think there is also, like you say, a corollary and that doesn't really get folded into the word survivor. Like, where do those pieces of us go that didn't survive? Or right. these new pieces of us that were born? Yeah. Yeah. And that was all, like, very much at the forefront of my mind when I was mm-hmm. trying to find a shape. Yeah. I love that. Thanks. Um, so the part of that I'm going to read is not super heavy. Uh, and I'm <laughs> I'm going to – it's, it's actually not. Um, <laughs> I'm going to skip around a little. Uh, the – the main character, whose name is Gwendolyn, she and her partner, um, excuse me, her boyfriend, Tristan, they are taking this very touristy vampire tour of the French Quarter at night. Um, and some sort of spooky things start to happen. I felt like this was a good kind of Halloween vibe. And it's yeah. nothing too heavy. It's just a little weird and unsettling. Um, okay. And I don't mind sharing that uh, a lot of the weird stuff is sort of loosely pretty specifically based on on some things that have happened to me at night in New Orleans. (laughs) So there's there's always some like weird stuff going on in that city. Um all right, so I'll I'll just read a short selection. Okay, great. Our guide was a local community theater celebrity with a BA in history from Tulane. His name was Jean-Luc LeBlanc, and he owned his own little tour company. Our group met in Jackson Square at 10 p.m. in front of St. Peter's Cathedral. Jean-Luc introduced himself, collected payments from walk-ups, and brought out a bunch of Tyvek event bracelets, the kind that stick around your wrist with an adhesive patch, like at a hospital. They were part of the deal that he had with a local bar, where we could each get a single free drink at the end of the tour by showing the bracelet. I kept having the uneasy compulsion to glance around, and after a few moments, I realized why. That woman is staring at you, I said to Tristan quietly, half entertained and half bewildered. Maybe 20 feet away from our group, there was indeed a woman who was staring at him. She looked sophisticated, blonde hair pulled back in an expertly styled chignon, messy but not too messy. Natural makeup, meticulously applied, her skin was luminous. She wore small gold hoop earrings, dark jeans, and a matte gold shell with a scalloped neckline, a trim black jacket over it. I know, Tristan said in a low voice. 
His body language was agitated, verging on anger. His hands were balling into fists at his sides, his chest puffed out. The woman didn't look away. Her expression was intently focused. She's trying to gauge whether she recognizes him, I realized. Do you know her, I said. Excuse me, miss, Jean-Luc interrupted. Can I see you for a moment? What? I was distracted. Why? Did you get your bracelet? Sorry, I walked around a few of our group numbers. A bracelet? Ah, yes, he said, taking my hand with a dramatic flourish, kissing it in a showy way. (laughs) Several women in the group giggled, as did I. I quickly glanced back at Tristan. The blonde woman was standing near him now. She seemed to be saying something quietly to him, but her expression was so casual, so neutral, she might as well have been asking for directions. Jean-Luc finished wrapping the bracelet around my wrist with a flourish. There you are, miss. Gwendolyn, is it? This it will ensure that you receive your free beverage at Jean Lafitte's Haunted Tavern when our tour concludes. Well, thank you, I said. I think my partner needs one, too. Tristan stepped up, chest out, and stuck his wrist in Jean-Luc's face. For a second, I thought he was going to punch him. Ah, the jealous husband, Jean-Luc said, and slapped a bracelet on Tristan's wrist, a glimmer in his eye. We're not married, I said, laughing. And then I looked at Tristan's face, drawn and pale. He wasn't laughing. Are you okay? I asked him as we moved further away to make room for another bracelet-seeking tourist. I'm fine, he said shortly. What did that woman want? I don't know. What do you mean? I saw her say something to you. I don't know. It sounded like French or Portuguese, maybe. I didn't understand a word. And I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Our group began walking through the corridor, stopping at sporadic points to hear true crime anecdotes from the 1700s and 1800s. They were carefully selected to dovetail with details of vampire lore. It was informative, but frivolous, kitschy and delightful at once. Adding to my enjoyment was the fact that Jean-Luc bore a passing resemblance to Tristan. I could tell that Tristan found the tour stupid, and much to my amusement, the unmistakable visual resonance between them (laughs) further annoyed him. Jean-Luc was nearly as tall as Tristan. They were both long-haired redheads, though Jean-Luc's hair was auburn to Tristan's ginger and hung halfway down his back. Jean-Luc's eyes were dark brown, and Tristan had shown up for our flight clean-shaven, but other than that, they could have been twins. We were stopped in front of the old Ursuline convent when I slipped into a reverie, the blonde woman from Jackson Square wafting before me like a film projection. We wandered over to the steps outside St. Mary's Chapel. Jean-Luc was talking about the casket girls, the filles de cassette, who became the filles de casquette. Sweet orphan girls of marriageable age and sound morals, raised by nuns in France, sent to Louisiana as mail-order brides to be watched over by the nuns until they married. But their ship arrived, excuse me, their ship arrived in the new world, mysteriously empty of passengers, though rife with luggage. Word spread quickly that a vampire had stowed away on board in France, and once at sea, the helpless passengers had been overtaken and drained while they slept. That in the safety of daylight, these vampires had been brought into the church in Louisiana for containment. The casket-shaped luggage brought to the old Ursuline convent did nothing to quell this increasingly popular belief. The convent's shutters on the attic floor were soon nailed shut with nails specially blessed by the Pope, it was said, and sent by private courier from the Vatican. Suddenly, I felt a sharp, stinging scratch on my right arm, and then on my left cheek. It felt like a razor dipped in acid and smashed against my skin. What the hell? 
I grabbed my face and coiled into myself. But no one around me reacted or even noticed, not even Tristan. I looked up at Jean-Luc and he was still talking, but I couldn't follow what he was saying. The rest of the group, even Tristan, stared at him raptly. Everything was moving slowly, dreamlike. Jean-Luc's voice sounded like he was speaking from the bottom of a well. I felt three more stinging scratches on my throat. What the fuck? I yelled. I wanted to scream, but my throat wasn't working well enough. I felt the fiery scratches moving down my back under my dress. Something is scratching me. My eyes were wet with panic. Tristan! Tristan! Desperately, I threw myself against his body, latched onto his forearm, and yanked as hard as I could, my whole body weight behind it. He wrenched to one side with my weight pulling at him. He nearly fell over. What? What's going on? He sounded alarmed. What happened? Are you all right? Why the fuck didn't you answer me? Everyone else was slowly waking up around us, including Jean-Luc. Ah. Anyway, Jean-Luc glanced around, seemingly confused for a moment. On to our final stop, Lafitte's Tavern. I'm so sorry, Tristan said. He looked puzzled. I didn't hear you say anything. Are you fucking with me right now? What? No, I didn't hear you. What? I was screaming your name in your ear. I was terrified. What? Listen, if this is a joke, it's mean and it isn't funny. You need to stop now. Tristan looked unnerved. I'm not. I'm not. I promise. This isn't a joke. What happened? You were screaming at me? I don't know. I was listening to the guide. I spaced out for a minute and then you tackled me and you were yelling in my face. What? What? I don't know. What are you talking about? You're scaring me, I said, clinging to the idea that this was all a stupid prank. Jean-Luc and the rest of our tour group were walking placidly ahead. Everyone seemed mildly, affably discombobulated. We were headed to the bar. This isn't funny. You're scaring me, Tristan said, and he looked like he meant it. I wasn't sure Tristan ever really felt fear, but he did look confused and uneasy. Listen, I don't know what happened, but if what you're saying is true, I mean, if you're not messing with me, I think we should go back to the hotel right now. Yes, I said. It still wasn't quite fear that I saw in his eyes, but now there was a watchful recognition that trouble was afoot, and somehow that terrified me more. Let's go. Gwendolyn, he said, his tone tight. Don't invite anyone into our hotel tonight, not even into the lobby. I think I'll close there. If that's I love right. that. Yes, I was going to clap because I love that. Don't invite anyone in. <laughs> we all know what that means. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that, Fox. It's so, um, I admire you for sharing a work in progress because that's something that I have a hard time doing. So I admire you doing it because it's wonderful and I just want to read more. And so hopefully this experience gives you like a kick in the pants <laughs> keep going because <laughs> you have so much there that's intriguing and I was I was really wrapped up in it and I realized um I was muted at one point and I you had said something to me and I responded but I was muted because I was had my eyes closed and I was listening um because I was totally wrapped up in it so um that's like the nicest way someone's ever wished me a kick in the pants <laughs> okay good that. thank you very much <laughs> um so yeah. Do you have any last thoughts and, or would, where do people find you if they'd like to hear more about Agape and you and all the incredible things that you up to? Cause you also do, um, Alice says, go fuck yourself. Oh yeah. Alice says, go fuck yourself. I'm so glad we can say that word. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> I didn't even think about the fact that it was going to be like in my book and in my magazine. Title. So, <laughs> it's such a great well. word, though. We should all be able to say it. It's true. Yeah. Very impressive. Um, so actually, any information that that one might want about me or the press or Alice says, go fuck yourself can be found at the Agape website. So that is um, HTTPS colon double slash. And then it's agape a g a p e dash editions.com um and once you get to that page you'll see we have a blog we have um a digital magazine which issue five is probably going to come out next week um and it's full of awesome awesome spooky stuff but (laughs) the magazine is called alice says go fuck yourself (laughs) and i i co-edit that with c martinez who is uh, a denver-based uh writer musician and visual artist and she's amazing and brilliant and I'm so I love working with her she's great mm. um she also does agape social media so anytime anyone sees anything on agape social media that's usually her um but yeah so all of our imprints are listed there our titles are listed there there's a link you know to to shop yes. and um, you can read titles on there like, oh that's right yeah yes. one of her, I one will of put her. the website in the show notes so people can easily find it but yes you can read things on the website Our morning house imprint. Yes. Our morning house imprint is dedicated to um, offering super beautiful free literature that is available as PDF downloads. So, and the covers are beautiful and just the, the authors are amazing. So yeah. And I, and if anyone is curious about me or my, you know, where to find me on social media, I have a, all of our our team, our masthead page leads to little bio pages for each person on the masthead. And my Instagram is linked to on my page. So I'm it's like a one-stop shop. Yeah, that's wonderful. And there's so much to see there. I just want to say that um, <laughs> Fox is an incredibly busy, creative person. So please go check it out. Um, I think everything you make is beautiful. You said the stuff on Morning Press is beautiful. I mean, really everything that I've seen you put out anywhere is is beautiful and thought-provoking and feminist um and fascinating thank you so much for saying that that's so nice and thank you for having me on your podcast and for thinking of me this was great you're welcome I it honestly the podcast is an excuse for me to talk to brilliant people that uh inspire me so it's a treat for me and it was lovely talking with you fox and hearing your work in progress and I just I can't read wait to read the whole thing because I know it's going to be amazing. So yeah. And and thank you for everyone for joining us on this um, Halloween and, and thank you for joining us in general. We know you have lots of choices. The world is full of choices. So thanks for making the choice to join us.